Previously on If the Walls Could Talk. Edgewater ultimately closed because they chose to defraud the government. The ripples that went through the community was devastating. We were going to cause a significant number of people to lose their jobs. It wasn't something we anticipated. The following contains adult language and content. Discretion is advised. Edgewater Hospital had the makings of being a world-class hospital. Jim Ginter is the grandson of Dr. Maisel, who co-founded the hospital in 1929. Dr. Maisel hoped his grandson would follow in his footsteps. For a long time, that was what I was told was, you're going to be like me, you're going to be a great doctor, and this could be yours. You could run the place. But being a doctor wasn't Jim's calling. One too many trips to the ER and seeing blood and seeing things that I didn't like seeing, I knew it wasn't in the cards for me, and I thought, well... I could still run the place. I don't have to be a doctor and run the place. I could still do that. So Jim went to work in Edgewater's payroll department. When we were given jobs at the hospital, the first thing they said was, don't ever think that because you're related to us that you're getting a free ride. It's the opposite. By that time, his grandmother and then his mother were running the hospital. Even after Peter Rogan purchased it, Jim continued to work there until 2000 when he left for another job. In my heart, I knew it was time to walk away. It was 18 years of my life working there. 18 was was enough. Before Jim left, he heard from the hospital's former CEO, Peter Rogan, and the new CEO, Joanne Skavarik. Joanne and Peter both stopped me and they said, you know, we're sorry you're leaving. You're a valuable person here. We really want you to know that you will always have a place here. And that, that was really nice of them to say. They threw me a big party, and I left. Um, And then a year later, it closed. There were so many hopes and dreams for what the hospital could have been, but there was greed. There was poor judgments that really brought down what was a good, viable business. And the last few years, really sort of muddied the legacy of of a great hospital. So I guess I'm bothered by that. And people ask me, did you know? And I said, I truly had no clue. I didn't know that something was coming down the line. All I knew that it was my time to leave. After the government shut off Medicare payments, Edgewater Hospital ran out of cash and closed its doors in December 2001. That threw an eerie number of people out of work. That number, 666. I just sat there and thought, why, why? Former Edgewater employees like Donna Jarvis were in disbelief. This place, if someone would have taken it over and done something with it, it could have been a very major institution but they just let it go to hell. For medical residents like Dr. Doug Lim, when he heard Edgewater had closed... Not surprised at all. Probably more happy that did close because, you know, wasn't providing good medical care to the patients at that time. On a scale of one to 10, you know, like five or six as far as quality of care. When all the articles started pouring out in 2001 of all these doctors being indicted, I was like, Yes. Laura Wasilak worked at Edgewater. There was really bad stuff going on there. You know, I didn't think it was possible during that time frame for something like that to happen. But whether it's doctors or 
businessmen. There's always people out there that are trying to make a buck. All the people who were cheated out of their vacation time and they're left with nothing. Janice Lindquist left just a few months before the hospital closed. They gave their lives to that place and then they were completely abandoned by such horribly opportunistic, parasitic individuals. It's just such a sad chapter. Next to Roger Eman's six-and-a-half-year sentence, the courts came down hardest on cardiologist Dr. Andrew Cabrilla. U.S. Attorney Thomas Bondi explained. Dr. Cabrilla pled guilty to performing hundreds of invasive heart procedures on people who didn't need them. He opened them up and did things to their hearts that they didn't need. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, and two of them died. Cabrilla admitted that at least half of the cardiac caths he performed at Edgewater were medically unnecessary, as were many of the angioplasties. Attorney Bruce Paff explains. He admitted that there was a scheme at Edgewater for him and others to do hundreds of unnecessary cardiac catheterizations for profit. Dr. Cubria was sentenced to 12 and a half years in federal prison and ordered to forfeit $2 million in profits on top of paying an additional $14.4 million in restitution. But the judge warned that the government would never see that money. Since Cabrilla's medical license was suspended, he was unemployed and living in a basement. Dr. Cabrilla also settled his malpractice case with the Albert Ocaro estate. Albert was the auto mechanic who died on Cabrilla's table. Mr. Ocaro was in the hospital for less than 24 hours. His insurer was billed $30,000 for horribly negligent care that killed him. After four and a half years and plenty of behind-the-scenes drama, a jury awarded his estate just over $9 million. A handful of other players in the scheme, like Dr. Rao, entered guilty pleas of their own. Rao admitted that he unnecessarily hospitalized 900 patients at Edgewater. He was sentenced to 35 months in prison. We put the full list of who was charged and what their penalty was on the episode page at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. The management companies that ran Edgewater Hospital from the mid-90s until 2001 were largely run by Peter Rogan. These companies also pleaded guilty to criminal health care fraud charges. A federal judge ordered them to pay $13.6 million each, but knocked that amount down to $2.9 million because of their inability to pay. While a handful of his former Edgewater Hospital colleagues went to prison, Peter Rogan remained a free man. In 2004, the government dropped their criminal investigation into Peter Rogan. Instead of criminal charges, the government and the hospital's former creditor, Dexia Bank, filed civil lawsuits against Peter. Unlike a criminal case where jail time is a possible outcome, all that was at stake in the civil trials was Peter's money. The government's civil suit against Peter was noteworthy because it was the first major healthcare fraud case ever to go to trial in the Northern District of Illinois. These types of cases are usually settled before they make it to the courtroom. As I recall, we had an opportunity to settle the civil case. Neil Holman represented Peter Rogan. But he turned down the deal. Peter gambled that his defense team that kept him from being charged criminally could also win his civil trials. He could have walked away with a lot of money and have his life intact, but Rogan wouldn't agree to the settlement. It was a risky decision that could cost him millions. This episode discusses suicide. If you need to speak with someone, help is available through the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800-273-8255.
When Edgewater Hospital closed in 2001, they literally shut the doors and never returned. It filed for bankruptcy, and then the huge hospital campus and everything inside those buildings just sort of froze in time. They just up and left. Journalist Monica Rida described how it looked. It almost was like out of a horror movie or like an apocalyptic movie where like everyone gets wiped out with the snap of a finger. That's how it looked. A handful of people got to see that eerie scene firsthand. Wes Johnson was part of that team. I was hired along with another team of attorneys to find and review documents that might be relevant to the case against Rogan. As lawyers for the government and Dexia built their cases against Peter Rogan, they returned to the abandoned Edgewater Hospital in search of evidence. We were looking for documents related to doctors accused of participating in the Medicare fraud, like Dr. Kubria and Dr. Barnabas, and any documents that would reflect on the fraud. With little to no electricity, the group created a makeshift office out of old desks and then spent the next six weeks combing every floor. We didn't know where documents were hiding. The hospital had been closed for three years at that point. It was almost completely abandoned, but we were let in by the maintenance guy in the morning. But it didn't stop the many visitors. Once in a while, people tried to get in. Some showed up begging to see their doctor. The FBI and even Peter Rogan stopped by one day. He was very well dressed, seemed to be in a semi-jovial mood. We were cordial to him and he was cordial to us. But uh, obviously we were shocked and surprised that he was actually coming to the hospital. Peter and his attorney came to review some documents, but for Wes, seeing the man they were investigating struck a chord. It was odd to see him in the abandoned hospital, full of these boxes of documents and these desks and chairs that we had found around the hospital and set up for ourselves. And to see him in that context and imagine him in the original context was kind of surreal. The man about to go on trial for running a fraud scheme that destroyed Edgewater Hospital was now standing at the scene of the alleged crime. One document I I can say that I saw is uh, Rogan and his wife instructing what his private chef would make them on this yacht holiday that they had planned. I think this was sometime in the late 90s when he's well into this fraud Um, And it was just kind of galling to see that he was making enough money that he was having a private chef prepare specific meals for his kids on on this yacht vacation when he was ripping off the government for Medicaid and Medicare. That was kind of shocking to see. Wes came across a few other things that were ironic. The high-level mission statements of the hospital. That mission statement read, We are compassionate to our patients' health, emotional, and spiritual needs and thus treat all patients in an ethical, compassionate, respectful, and dignified manner. So it was kind of ironic to find that in the ruins of the hospital caused by financial fraud and Medicare fraud that the hospital administrators perpetrated. Some of Edgewater's equipment and office furniture were sold in a bankruptcy auction, but plenty still remained. There were jars of specimens, boxes and boxes of prescription-type drugs that had been just left over. You can say that Wes was one of the first urban explorers to photograph Edgewater Hospital. And if you're wondering what's an urban explorer, well, that's someone who takes pictures of abandoned buildings and structures. I opened up a small room and I swore for a moment that there was a dead body lying on the floor in front of me. But it was like a Rissusa Annie type doll that was life-size and had hair. And that was probably the scariest moment in the hospital. During his weeks there, he took numerous pictures. We posted some of them on the episode page 
at ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast.com. In a later episode, we'll share more stories and photos from other urban explorers. Shortly after Wes and his crew finished their legal work at the hospital, the one remaining custodian at Edgewater was dismissed. The buildings then just sat there. The hospital wasn't even given the dignity of a respectful death. That's Roger Manulet, whose father worked there. It's like a loved one died in the street and everyone just let it rot right there. As investigators dug in and followed Peter Rogan's trail of money, it led them to millions of dollars stashed all across the globe. Some of those millions went to trusts that Peter set up for his children. It is very common for people to create the trust for somebody other than themselves. Attorney Jay Adkisson specializes in offshore asset planning. Usually, trusts are formed to pass money from generation to generation. But investigators believed Peter Rogan set up these trusts in his children's names to hide his money from creditors. And unfortunately, you see a lot of people who are fraud artists that misuse these structures and these offshore jurisdictions to do bad things. Investigators believe this complex maze of trusts and corporations were set up by Peter and his agents to evade creditors, just in case someone came looking for his money. Two of those agents were Peter's friend and lawyer, Fred Cuppy, and his accounting guy, David Miller. When the court ordered David Miller to turn over some financial records, he said, anything I had was removed by Fred Cuppy. And that's when things turned ugly. About two weeks later, David Miller's body was found in his home. His death was ruled a suicide. According to the coroner, the 56-year-old died after suffocating, a result of him hanging himself. Along with a wife and four children, David left behind countless unanswered questions. He said it was one of the most interesting jobs he's ever had. The sickness and the death and the drama that must have played out there. You could sort of get a feeling for all of that just from being in the building. We'll talk more with that lawyer who had to comb every floor of Edgewater Hospital in search of evidence in this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon. For just $10 a month, you can unlock bonus content like that at patreon.com slash if the walls could talk podcast. The United States versus Peter Rogan finally got underway in the spring of 2006. In this civil case, the government alleged that Peter Rogan cheated government insurers in an elaborate fraud scheme. At stake in this case were millions of Peter Rogan's dollars. In a criminal case, the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. But the burden of proof is lighter in civil trials. Some call it the 51% rule, meaning that 51% of the evidence must favor the plaintiff. Our defense strategy was that Rogan was not involved. Neil Holman was one of Peter's attorneys. He didn't know anything about it. They admitted there was a conspiracy and fraud was committed at the hospital, but that Peter Rogan was not involved. That was all done through Eamon and indirectly through some of the other doctors who were involved. Peter's lawyers pointed the finger at Roger Eamon. The case would come down to who was more credible, Roger Eamon or Peter Rogan. Just a note that there are no recordings from these trials, so voice actors will read from court transcripts. Peter Rogan's bench trial would extend multiple weeks and feature plenty of explosive testimony. Roger Eamon would be one of the government's star witnesses. 
His testimony was critical to prosecutors because it would disprove Peter's defense that he didn't know about the fraud happening at the hospital. When called to testify against his old boss, Roger Eman was still in prison. The former vice president of Edgewater Hospital was serving a six and a half year sentence for his role in the fraud scheme. Roger's testimony came with no plea deal from the government. So by being there, he had nothing really to lose or gain other than to clear his conscience. Before I went on the stand, I said, God, I just want to tell the truth. And what I, I'm asking you to do is help me to answer the questions with the truth. As Roger slowly walked into the courtroom, his speed was constricted by the shackles on his legs. He carried a sweater, which somewhat covered the handcuffs on his wrists. Just before he reached the front of the courtroom, Logan steps out in front of me and looks me in the eye. He says, Roger, I hope you and your family are doing okay. And I saw guilt in him. For three days, Roger answered questions on the witness stand. So I'm on the stand, and I had two conversations going at the same time. I would hear the question from the lawyers. At the same time, I have a voice inside of me, I guess it's the Holy Spirit, for lack of a better term, giving me the answer. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And, and how I could keep the two conversations going at the same time is, is beyond me. He was asked about the steam bath incident, the one where Peter described a novel that involved wiretaps and a main character who had to take the fall in order for the organization to survive. Roger had no doubt that Peter was talking about something different. I drew from this that he was speaking about me and my situation at Edgewater. Roger testified that he didn't say much during the steam bath and chose his words carefully. Well, I, I really didn't want to ruffle Mr. Rogan's feathers in any way because I really needed to keep my job and employment. I, I was grateful, really very grateful, in fact, that he kept me on the payroll as long as he did. That was, that was very nice. Even while incarcerated, Roger was thanking the man who many believe set him up. Prosecutors then asked about Peter's mysterious note passing, where he talked out loud about one thing while scribbling notes that encouraged him to take the fall. He said that if I would not implicate him, that he would take care of myself and my family forever. But Peter's supportive tone eventually changed. He, he urged me to cooperate, accept responsibility for everything myself. And by cooperating and pleading guilty, I would get a lesser sentence. And during my incarceration, should that occur, he would not be able to take care of my family because it would look um, well, inappropriate. And upon my being released, then he could address those issues. Peter wanted Roger to admit that I was a renegade employee, I guess, um, you know, a loose cannon. Then Roger's testimony turned into a mini confession. Look, I'll be honest with you. My actions were inappropriate. To this day, I regret some of the things I did. And, and it did impact a lot of people, and a lot of those people have families. And they lost their jobs, and I feel partly responsible for that. So I believe he was speaking to me in my situation at Edgewater, and that indeed, if I would accept full responsibility for everyone concerned, Edgewater might indeed survive, and it's in the best interest of those people at Edgewater. During cross-examination, Peter's lawyers immediately attacked Roger's credibility. Roger's memory seemed to improve over time, they said, 
because he revealed key details that he never mentioned to the FBI or grand jury years earlier. The lawyer questioned if Roger did that just to get a lighter sentence. No. And then they dropped a bombshell. Around the time Roger pleaded guilty, he agreed to numerous interviews with the feds. But the government didn't think he was telling the truth. So Roger volunteered to take a polygraph test. Peter's lawyers presented Exhibit 112A, the results of that polygraph. Some of Roger's responses were indicative of deception. So he volunteered to take a second test. And once again, Roger failed. One question in particular tripped him up. That question was, has Peter Rogan offered to take care of you for not telling the government about his activities at the hospital? Roger's answer was indicative of deception. Roger explained that during the polygraph, the people administering the test suggested that maybe he blocked out that memory. They went into this whole frame of, you know, you got family, you're looking at a long sentence. We, we, we want you to pass this thing. So they urged him to come up with the number of times Peter offered to take care of him if he didn't implicate him. You say you only recall one time speaking to Mr. Rogan about this issue. However, you also testified, you said before, that you met with him frequently in his office. Now, how can you meet with him all that many times and not have talked to him more than one time about it? The test shows you must have talked to him more than that because you're not telling the truth. The judge noted that polygraph examinations are usually not admissible in court because of questions with reliability, but he allowed it because of the unique circumstances. Peter's lawyer then circled back to the meeting that led to the steam bath. He asked Roger about his mindset, specifically if he was contemplating suicide. No, never. The judge interrupted and asked to speak to Peter's lawyer for a sidebar. When testimony resumed, Peter's lawyer again questioned Roger's state of mind at the time of the steam bath. At that point in time, I, I could see the writing on the wall. I mean, I knew there was a very good likelihood that I was gonna go to prison. And Roger once again denied contemplating suicide. No, I don't recall that. They tried every trick and to trap me and all that, and I always gave perfect answers that were the truth, and they were frustrated because what they were trying to do, the twist of truth, didn't work. Next up on the witness stand was Roger's assistant. She testified that Roger was often yelled at by Peter and that after these incidents, Roger would have her call the heavy hitters meaning the doctors who admitted a lot of patients. She also testified that Dr. Kubria always yelled at Roger and also treated her poorly. When Roger found out, he went to the hospital cafeteria and returned with a cookie and a soda for her. Dr. Andrew Cabria was the government's other star witness. He too was incarcerated at the time and really had nothing to gain or lose. Kubria explained that Roger never did anything without first saying he had to talk to Peter. It's like when you pray and say amen at the end of Hail Mary. You know, it's like every time I talk to him, I have to go talk to Peter. Kubria also told the court about Peter asking innocuous questions while scribbling notes about the investigation. Yeah, he told me to destroy my computer. I don't know if it was in that note or in another note where he said, don't tell this to anybody, not even your sister, not even your attorney, because this could be construed as obstruction of justice. Whenever Dr. Cabrilla needed money, he said he went to Peter Rogan. Cabrilla received contracts, loans, and even got the hospital to pay thousands of dollars for his TV commercials. 
The prosecution claimed this was a method of funneling money to Dr. Cabrilla in order to ensure a steady flow of patient referrals to the hospital. As for prison life, Cabrilla said it was much different than his swanky life on Chicago's North Shore. Instead of driving his Porsche and performing heart procedures, he was teaching Spanish-speaking inmates how to get their GED. He was also active in the church and working towards his master's in theology. When Cabrilla and Roger Eman's testimony wrapped up, it was now their word against Peter's. And since they were both doing time in prison, it was up to Peter to appear more credible. Before Peter Rogan's trial ever started, the case made headlines when a war of words broke out between the U.S. Attorney's Office and a judge. Yeah, we'll talk about that in this week's Second Opinion episode on Patreon. For just $10 a month, you can unlock bonus content like that at patreon.com slash ifthewallscouldtalkpodcast. Other than brief no-comment type answers, Peter Rogan didn't talk publicly about the Edgewater case until he testified at the trial. And if you had to choose a word to best describe Peter's testimony on the witness stand, go with the one the judge used, evasive. He said, for a case that is so dependent upon credibility of the witnesses, it's doing no good for your client to be giving these evasive answers. Neil Holman was one of Peter's attorneys. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, that didn't sound too good for us. As most lawyers do when preparing a witness to testify, Peter's lawyer instructed him to answer the question that's asked, don't volunteer. And Rogan took that kind of advice to a level that was really not healthy in the sense that if he were to be asked, did you attend the meeting on Tuesday at two o'clock? If the meeting happened to be at three o'clock, his answer to that question would be no, which is an example of an evasive answer. It's really following our instructions to a T but to a T that really is not where you want to take something like that. But that's the kind of guy that Rogan was. He was very particular, very precise. There was one instance, just before stepping off the witness stand, that Peter asked the judge, Is my admonishment over? He was smart enough to get the fact that maybe the judge was talking about him when he brought us all up there. As Peter Rogan spoke about Roger Eman, he did manage to work in a compliment. He described Roger as someone well-liked by the medical staff, but then added that Roger had difficulty delivering bad news. And that's when Peter's lawyers began to shift the blame. When Peter was asked who was responsible for recruiting physicians... That would be Mr. Eamon. Who signed them to contracts? Again, that would be Mr. Eamon. And who determined contract compliance and compensation? Well, that would be Mr. Eamon also. It was Roger who handed out bogus contracts in exchange for patients. Peter didn't know anything about it. His lawyers then played that audio that Dr. Rao secretly recorded in Peter's office, that same meeting where Peter angrily denied paying for patients. Edgewater doesn't pay for patients, never has. Peter was asked if he knew Dr. Rao was wearing a wire. No. If he told Roger that he smelled a rat? No, I did not. And if he would be on guard during the meeting? No. Dr. Rao said he had a source for patients. I informed him I was not interested in a source of patients or anything else like that. I went on to inform Dr. Rao that if he was talking about a new program, I told him the process by which he would investigate that program. Peter said he went to Roger after the meeting and asked if he engaged in any kinds of questionable discussions with Dr. Rao, anything that fell in the gray zone. 
Roger told him that he didn't. He told me that he had no such programs. Had no such programs that would be questionable with regard to the rules and regulations of Medicare. Peter also had a different take of that lunch meeting at the Ritz-Carlton that ended with him and Roger in a steam bath. I had a discussion with Mr. Eamon about how he was doing under the stress that he was experiencing. Mr. Eamon was upset at that particular point in time. He was very concerned about his family and what was happening. He informed me that he had considered suicide and had spoken to his pastors. And they informed him that that would be a selfish, cowardly way to address this issue. I was stunned that this had risen to such a level with Roger. So Peter said he tried to comfort Roger. I said to him, Roger, you need to rethink the situation. The thoughts about what you just discussed with me about suicide are way out of bounds in terms of how to handle this. Let's take a deep breath here. He claims that Roger was in such distress that he thought a steam bath might cheer him up. That I asked him to come with me and relax a little bit and go down to the health club and take a steam bath. What were those relaxing words he used? I discussed how, what the, what his family situation was. I said his wife was, you know, was a teacher. She was, you know, a, a good person and a strong person. His older daughter had, had been married and was a teacher. Not had been married, I, I guess had recently been married, I think, at that time and, and was a teacher. And his oldest daughter was almost through school and, you know, he had a loving, supporting family and that was, eh, that was something that he really needed to think about in terms, in terms of the situation. Peter denied describing a novel to Roger during their steam. He said he never promised to take care of Roger's family and never talked about one thing while scribbling notes about something different. As for Kubria's testimony that Peter told him to destroy his computer, Peter claimed he told Kubria quite the opposite. I said, don't do anything that would create any problems for you downstream, such as destroying memos, computer files, etc. Even though Peter urged Dr. Kubria not to destroy his computer, he didn't take his own advice. Peter ordered a document destruction service to get rid of 20 boxes of documents at his office after he received a grand jury subpoena. And remember how St. Peter gave Dr. Cabria an envelope with $9,000 in cash? Well, that was something Peter actually admitted to doing. When Peter was questioned about the sale of the hospital, lawyers wanted to know why he remained CEO when he said he didn't want that role. As a condition of the sale, I would have to enter into some sort of employment agreement to remain on at Edgewater. But then the prosecution presented evidence of Peter's master plan it was a fax detailing his sale of the hospital and how he would continue to run it through a management company that he also controlled. So even after making millions from selling the hospital in 1994, he continued to profit from it. Between 1995 and 2000, Peter and his family pocketed over $9.5 million from distributions from that management company. During closing arguments, Peter Rogan's lawyer pointed out how Peter was a smart man who wouldn't risk putting himself in jeopardy. You wouldn't think that he would have been involved in something like this. Since he made over $10 million when he sold the hospital, he didn't need to get involved in a scheme to make more money. Because I don't think he needed to a lot of money. The government countered and said Peter Rogan wanted the hospital to be successful because of greed and status. If the hospital was successful, it made him successful. Even after Peter sold the hospital, he profited from management fees the hospital paid. Peter's lawyers relied on that audio clip of Peter telling Dr. Rao that Edgewater Hospital didn't pay for patients. But prosecutors questioned what Peter did after that meeting. 
If you're a legitimate businessman and you have a doctor tell you that he's been using money you gave him to pay another physician for referrals, do you tell them to bring me new programs if you have some good new programs? No, you don't. You go to your lawyer and you say, we have a really big problem here. Rogan never did that. Testimony from the United States versus Peter Rogan wrapped up in the spring of 2006. Spring turned to summer, and summer turned to fall before the judge finally reached a verdict. I thought we had a chance to win. Peter Rogan's lead attorney, Neil Holman, had a good feeling. I thought that there was enough questions about how much did Rogan actually know about what was going on. There was a chance that the judge could say, you just haven't carried your burden of proof. When he read the ruling, those good feelings washed away. The evidence at trial demonstrated that Peter Rogan knowingly and for the purpose of obtaining reimbursement from the government caused Edgewater to submit numerous false claims. Rogan took a very hands-on approach concerning revenue. He created codes to track physician referrals and changed the codes to disguise their purpose. Determining how many patients Kubria and the other physicians were referring to Edgewater was essential to Rogan's scheme. Not only was Peter Rogan aware of what was happening, he actually devised a way to track those admissions. Rogan was interested in revenue and wanted to know that Edgewater was receiving referrals from the physicians who were being paid to do so. This was done on a regular basis to determine if he was getting his money's worth from the payments the hospital was making to Rao. The judge agreed with the prosecutor's argument that even after selling the hospital, Peter continued to control it. Rogan also went to great lengths to hide his equitable ownership interest from the onset of the scheme up to the time of his trial. Rogan created a maze of entities and transactions to acquire and operate Edgewater. He provided false statements to an accounting firm regarding his ownership while CEO and testified falsely at trial in this regard. We got the judgment and I read it. I thought, what was I thinking when I thought we could win the case? <laughs> the judge ordered Peter to pay damages and penalties of just over $64 million. At the time, it was one of the largest civil health care fraud judgments in Chicago history. It was the beginning of a long overdue day of reckoning for Mr. Rogan. The burden of proof for the government in a civil case is lesser than in a criminal case, so the government had an easier time. But it wasn't the government that brought Mr. Rogan to this day. It was his own choices along the way. As the government celebrated their long and hard-fought victory, you would think this is where the story ends, but no. Less than two weeks after being ordered to pay $64 million to the government, Peter Rogan fired his lawyers and fled the country. Next time on If the Walls Could Talk. Rogan just left the country. Peter Rogan went to Canada and has been able to remain there as a fugitive. Authorities are finally trying to have him deported. You've got this hospital with an incredibly tainted reputation and you have vandals, you have crime that goes on there. They had crowbars just ripping the place apart. 
This episode featured sound effects and voiceovers from Marty Bender read for Roger Eamon, Phil Manicki read for Peter Rogan, Jackie Pick read for Jackie Stern, Kate Weed read for the U.S. Attorney, and Chris Rice read for Dr. Andrew Cabrillo. Sound effects by FreeSFX.com. Music in this episode comes from the YouTube Audio Library. Wander by Emmett Fenn, Cypher by Wayne Jones, Digital Memories by Unicorn Heads, Stranger Danger by Francis Pree, Thinking About It by Jeremy Corpus, Two Moons by Bobby Richards, Just Us League by RKBC, Without Answer by Alex Kashkin, Criminal Pulse by Lynn Music, and Suspended in a Dream by Dimitri Balachin are all used under license through NeoSounds. This episode was written by Todd Gans. If the Walls Could Talk podcast is produced by Buckletown Productions, LLC. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.